Today, we're thrilled to talk with Dr. Carrie Edwards, who wrote the book on Timothy Dalton's two Bond films called He Disagreed with Something That Ate Him, arguing that both films are a unique contribution to the series and form an important dialogue with the rest of the franchise. So let's talk Dalton and his contributions to the Bond legacy. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. I'm Vicki Hodges. The SpyMovieNavigator.com as we're cracking the code of spy movies. Let's get talking with Dr. Carrie Edwards, a film studies lecturer who also has written for Bright Lights Film Journal. So today, our smartest spy in the room is Dr. Carrie Edwards. Welcome, Carrie. We're excited to have you on the show, cracking the code of spy movies, and look forward to you finally helping us crack the code of the living daylights and license to kill. Well, thank you very, very much. It's absolutely brilliant to be here, to be talking to some of you very far away and, and one of you actually not probably not that very far away at all. But it's fantastic. <laughs> and it's a, a wonderful moment of relief from what are very interesting times. And it's great to be able to talk to you. Yes, it is fun. This is fun to do. And it's certainly, like you said, Gary, in these crazy times. So, Gary, first of all, we love that you wrote the book. He disagreed with something that ate him highlighting the importance of Dalton in the franchise history. We're Dalton fans and wish he could have done a lot more Bond movies. (laughs) Now, you teach film studies and earned your PhD in vigilante cinema. Mm. Can you talk about what you teach and what you guide your students to look for when when they're examining a movie? Yes, so I have been teaching uh, film studies for 15 years, and... I also teach other things, but it's the thing I love to do. It's the most exciting thing. And, and what I try to do, what I hope I do, is teach my students to, I usually call it reading a film. And I think the, the best parallel is, is most people have studied English literature to some level, in the English-speaking world at least. And so you've taken apart a poem and you've considered rhyme and rhythm and meter mm. and couplets. Well, what we're doing in film studies is we're taking apart film sequences, we're taking apart whole films, we're considering the narrative structure, we're considering how shots fit together. We're thinking, we're kind of taking everything that you know to do and actually working out how you know to do that. How do you understand this? Which with some films is, is, is straightforward, with some films is less straightforward, and I try and take them from the simple to the complex. And and uh, I've just been doing some... Uh, Wushu films with some students recently, A House of Flying Daggers, which is a really interesting movie, where we go into a, a different sort of cultural world and we we look at the how the film language has changed, how the archetypes are different, how the expectations are different. And uh, sometimes we get to wander into some of the more interesting theories about how people watch and understand movies too. Yeah, that's cool. That it sounds is. great. I, I love the analogy between the reading part and translating that to the films. That's yeah. pretty, pretty neat. Harry, can I just ask you, I did film studies at yeah. Wolverhampton University many Brilliant. moons ago, and my focus was very much on the 70s crisis film. So a lot of my focus was on Jaws and the Poseidon Adventure. Brilliant. So we're bringing back quite a few memories for me listening it's, to it's, you speak. Well, strange, strangely enough, Vicky, I just taught Jaws. We just did it. Wow. Um, I used Jaws as a, a sort of an introductory film to teach the nuts and bolts of film language because Spielberg is, is so good at creating and crafting a scene and putting character in it and sort of layers. But thematically, he's very interesting because on one level, Jaws is a movie about a shark and on another level, it's about family and on another level, it's about Watergate and politics and all these sorts of things. So that's, that's really cool to hear. That's great. All right, so if you're doing film studies... Then you went and you wrote this book. So tell us a little bit about it and wh- why did you turn this into a book and decide to focus on that? I think, you know, what? that's a, that's a long story. But I, <laughs> look, most of us, I think, develop a love of James Bond pretty early on. I think that's a childhood thing. And being a child of the 80s, VHS recordings or VHS rentals from, you know, Blockbuster when that was still a thing, was a mainstay of holidays. And I'm sure it was just used to keep me quiet at home and me, my brother and I and that's fair enough and and the staples were the, the Bond films particularly interestingly the Roger Moore Bond films and so Octopussy and For Your Eyes Only Spy Love Me and, and all the rest were just sort of on a constant rotation then comes Timothy Dalton in 87 uh, but particularly I think License to Kill in, in 89 and really sort of blew me away now this is going back obviously I was what 12 
So it's going back a while. But this, this is where it gets set in the head, I think. Years later, I'm at university. I'm at the University of East Anglia in Norwich doing the MA Film Studies program, and I, I get to choose anything for my final dissertation. So obviously, I'm like, okay, now's my chance. I can, I'm going to do James Bond. Um, and I, I honed in on, on Timothy Dalton's films because at that point, I thought they were getting a really raw deal. I thought they were... The, the Bond films we didn't talk about, they didn't get put on TV as much. You would read articles, and it's almost like you would get bad reviews in Pierce Brosnan's films. It's like, well, you know, it's better than that. And so I sort of wrote it as, a, as a, an inquiry, but a, a slight, a, as a defense of them. And then a couple of years ago, I was, I was digging through my boxes and, and things, and I found my old research, and I thought, you know what, this is out of date, it needs updating, but actually there's something in this, I think. And I thought, well, why not put it out there and see what happens? I had no expectations, no goals. I just thought I'd do it. And uh, now I'm talking to, to, to guys in Chicago, which is incredible. <laughs> um, but it just comes comes out of, of, of thinking that the, both The Living Daylights and Licensed to Kill are really interesting within the franchise more broadly. Mm-hmm. I think they are trying to do something different, particularly Licensed to Kill. And I think because they were trying to do something so different at the time, people reacted to them and didn't take them on their own merits. And I, I wanted to look at them on their own merits. It, it, it's funny because at the time in the 90s, particularly, something was happening with Honor Majesty's Secret Service and George Lazenby, which previously had been the James Bond we didn't talk about, the forgotten Bond. And he sort of went through this um, reappraisal where people actually just watched the film and said, actually, this is a great movie. This is a terrific film. And I think... That's starting, that has happened in the last few years with Dalton, and we're sort of rediscovering him partly because Daniel Craig is doing things that I think Dalton did or started mm-hmm. back in the late 80s, and I, I see a lot of similarity or at least parallels between their interpretation of Bond. Yeah, that's great, because this brings to mind for me this concept. What do, you, what do you think of Dalton as being this different kind of Bond and why has his films been largely forgotten over all these years? Until maybe now, like you're saying. And where do you think Dalton ranks among among all the bots? Well, I'm intensely biased. <laughs> I, I think he's brilliant. I think I, I I don't dislike any of them. I think they all have their merits. But there's a certain level. It's like um, imprinting. I think if if you get a certain bond at the right age, that that one hits you. So I will defend Dalton. But I think if Pierce Brosnan had been the one that hit me at the right age, I might be defending him. <laughs> and, you know, for my, my father's generation who, who saw Sean Connery when, you know, originally in the 60s, there is just Sean Connery and everybody else is an imitator and, and nobody else matters and, and those things. I think Dalton, for me, connected because he brought an interesting intensity to the role. He took the role seriously and Bond became a, a more serious character. And that's partly, of course, going to be held in relief because he follows Roger Moore. Mm-hmm. And... Roger, and I do love Roger Moore's Bond films, but you can, maybe if your eyes only, but you're not going to accuse them of being serious films particularly. And, and that's not a criticism. It's just a different thing. So there was, there was that moment. And I think that's peppered our reactions to him because he was so different at the time. It took us a while to get used to it, the idea of Dalton and what he was doing. It's funny because I remember when Goldeneye came out in 95, which I was over the moon about and very excited. And, and I was nerdy enough to record specials off TV onto, onto mm. tape and, and, you know, bought the... Do you remember novelizations of movies? Yeah. Do they still do novelization? Yeah, yeah we, know, I, we know Raymond Benson, who, who did yeah, three of them for the Bryson I mean, movie. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's John Gardner, I think, did Goldeneye, didn't he? And, yeah. I, I mean, people yeah. complain about spoilers. I read that thing way before I went near the cinema, and I listened <laughs> to the audio. I knew the film backwards. Um but one of the things that happened when, when Goldeneye and Pierce Brosnan came out is it's sort of like he, I think Brosnan married something between Moore and, and Connery quite well. And therefore Dalton again sort of got left behind. And something I mentioned in the book is that the prologue in Goldeneye is actually set, I'm going to get the amount of years wrong, but it's set slightly in the past during when Dalton was Bond. And I always thought that that sort of like put mm. Brosnan back. And of course Brosnan arguably should have been in the living daylights i mean we'll no doubt discuss but yeah for me dalton just stood out and i i've always been a fan of fleming yeah. uh, i i take under lockdown i took the advantage of time to to read all the novels again Great. and i haven't read them in a few years and and amazing mm-hmm. and when i read fleming i think dalton dalton's there i think he's the closest yeah now as a follow-up here and kind of expanding a little bit on what you just said carrie 
talk about Dalton's ability with facial expressions because, for example, when he finds Saunders killed and pops the balloon, smears beyond him, meaning death to spies in the living daylights, and when he finds Della dead in License to Kill, his facial expressions are something I think that are tremendous. Tell us what you think of that and how that has played into his role as Bond. I think, you know, Dalton is a brilliant actor. We haven't seen as much of him in cinema as I'd like. I've never seen him on the stage. Apparently he's, he's a terrific stage actor. And he invested his, his Bond with an emotional complexity that I think had been lacking before, a willingness to embrace. Fleming used a term called acidy, a sort of, um, it's a bit like ennui or something, almost a self-hatred, a, a sort of a, a pleasure but a, a dislike at the same time. And, and Dalton has that. He holds mm. sometimes very contradictory emotions at the same time, and and he projects anger and very very well. And I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure anger is something we saw Bond do. I mean, you see it occasionally Roger Moore when he kicks Locke's car off in in Fury's Only. You see it. Yeah. And I guess you get flashes of it with Connery because there was something very animal about Connery. But Dalton, yeah, absolutely projects a, a complexity of emotion and exasperation and romance. I, uh, it's not something I talk about a lot in the book, actually, but I think Dalton in The Living Daylights is an incredibly romantic bond. Uh-huh. And that's a slightly different look as well. Yeah, I think his facial expressions are just tremendous. And substitute, when they say a picture's worth a thousand words, <laughs> when they show a close-up of his facial expressions in those couple of moments I mentioned and the kinds of things you're talking about, Carrie, it's just as like, yeah, you don't need words. This guy's that good. <laughs> That's cool. Now, I know you've uh, touched on this briefly already, but you state in your book that Dalton's Bond is looked on as unfavorably, but the general mood within the Bond community mm. and at meetups that I've been to is it's actually Brosnan, who is currently out of favor with uh, with fans. Do you wish to expand on your thoughts on this? I, th- I think it's a very good question. I think in the couple of years since the book came out, I think, and I'm probably part of the zeitgeist as much as anybody else, I think Di- Dalton has been recovered, and I think we are seeing a recovery of him and alike. But now we're kicking Brosnan. But I think this is a journey that the Bonds go through. I remember when we used to think Roger Moore was terrible, and now Roger Moore's beloved. And we used to go, oh, Moonraker's a ridiculous film. I mean, Moonraker is a ridiculous <laughs> film, but that's the joy of Moonraker. It's a fantastically ridiculous film. Um, and I think I think Brosnan's going through his difficult teenage years as, as James <laughs> Bond, and... and at some point, we will come back and we will go, actually, we quite liked him. So Dalton has is has gone under critical reappraisal, like George Lazenby did. Um, I think more widely, when I just talk to people, I've actually started to pick up on, on more people liking him. And maybe that's a generational thing. And uh, clearly, the way that people have, have responded to, to the book and some of the things I've said has actually kind of corrected me slightly. I think, okay, I'm not the voice in the wilderness thinking Dalton's brilliant, actually loads of people. And that's <laughs> one of the things the book's done is it's connected me, you know, even just via Twitter or whatever to lots of people who really like Dalton. And that's really nice to hear because for years, I do think, and particularly when the Brosnan films came out, there was this sort of sense of relief that Dalton didn't come back. And I was like, but I wanted him back. I wanted another, one more, one more would have done me. Yeah. Me too. Maybe your book helped bring people out of the closet on their, their liking of, of Dalton's mind. <laughs> I can I can only hope so. I, I think also the you know the anniversaries and the reissues of, of the you know the Blu-ray sets and that have allowed people to really watch all the Bonds again and 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 in a new and consider them kind of in a continuum. I mean, when I was younger, before Amazon and, and all these things, getting hold of Bond films was actually quite difficult. I live in a small town and you have to go and you know you get the VHS where you can or. Mm. You cut it. You cut it off. Uh, you recorded it off TV, and then you find out when you're an adult, they cut out 20 minutes of the film. There's a whole section of riding horses in Afghanistan in the Living Daylights that I never knew was there until I bought it. It was like, what's going on? Um, so I think we're allowed to. We've got the facility to really think about these films in in ways that perhaps in the late 80s and 90s they were sort of there and they were gone. And I also because License to Kill financially was disappointing. I mean, it made money, but it didn't make the money that the Living Daylights had made. I think that feeling of disappointment sort of lurked around it for a few years, unfairly. Survival, resistance and revenge, three key elements of the 80s action film. You mentioned that in early Bond films, we do not have this structure. After Honor Majesty's Secret Service and the death of Tracy, 
we would have assumed that Diamonds Are Forever would have been a revenge film, but it's far from it. Um, who would you like to would you like to have seen this happen, and who would you like to have been in that film, Lazenby or Connery? <sighs> I go back I, on the casting. I go backwards and forwards. It depends which Connery. If I if I get the Connery of from Russia with Love, I would take him definitely. But I think Lazenby deserved, and you know, to be fair, he was offered a second crack at the whip. And I think he would have matured, and I think he would have grown with the role. I actually think he's terrific in, in On a Majesty's Secret Service, but I think sometimes he feels a little raw, although maybe that suits, the, suits that sort of film. It would have been fab to see that closure with Blofeld properly. We had to make do with somebody who might be Blofeld being dropped down a chimney, <laughs> which was a shame. But one of the things I, I think, and I mentioned in the book, is thematically, I think, Bond's revenge mission in License to Kill is almost a, a revenge for Tracy's death. He sees Indella, his mm-hmm. wife, and, and it's alluded to, not in massive ways, but there's that moment where Della throws the garter. Yes. And, you know, the, you know, Tracy's mentioned, sort of alluded to. And I think the anger that, that, that Bond feels and goes on this revenge mission is because of, of the death of his wife. And it's providing a sort of thematic closure, if not an actual closure. Yeah. Tom and I were actually, we visited all the License to Kill locations in Key West, and we stood on those steps you're talking about when she throws the garter. <laughs> we weren't supposed to be there, but <laughs> I rang the I bell. I wouldn't tell anybody. <laughs> I rang so. the bell to see if they were home, and <laughs> they didn't answer. So I got to Brilliant. go up the steps and see exactly where they did that. So that was fun. Anyway. That really was. Now, as we're talking about Lazenby and Connery, and the early traditional, if you will, Bond films. You've mentioned a few times in your book that the Dalton Bond films break with the traditions. So can you kind of talk about the impacts of the where they break tradition and the impacts going forward with the Bond series? I, I think the, one of the key things is the relationship with M is very different. I think M had always been a sort of disapproving father figure, but generally warm. And Bernard Lee was brilliant. And, you know, he, he rolled his eyes and he got frustrated, but generally he indulged Bond and, and they had a back and forth on that. Robert Brown comes in and, and, and does a sterling job, but I think he's much more interesting in Dalton's films than he is in, in Roger Moore's films, where he's sort of doing the same things that Bernard Lee did. There's an antagonism, almost a resentment that Bond has towards M that comes out. And you see that particularly in the Hemingway house yes. in License to Kill where the license to kill is, is revoked. But you see it in that, that scene where he's with Saunders in, in the Aston Martin, and he, he says, you know, if he fires me, I'll thank him for it. Yeah. And, and it's that Bond has a, a, a really difficult job. I mean, you know, he is, he's basically a state-sponsored killer. And he, for Dalton, he's troubled for that. M is the person who sends him out on these journeys. He, he needs him to do things. And, and, and bringing that tension, I thought, was very, very important. And I think that made a big difference. I think License to Kill more generally breaks with the franchise more because it has more of an action emphasis. And, of course, it, it, it throws out a lot of the things we expect. The scene with M is, is tense and anxious. We do get Money Penny, but it's kind of thrown in, I think, more as a sop than a, an actual scene. You get a lot more Desmond Llewellyn, which is fantastic because we, we love him. Always good to see Q. Yeah. It makes me smile and, every time he's on the screen. And, he really, and he brings a lot of humor and, yeah. and a lot of warmth Makes to the role. Makes me smile every time he's developed. on the screen. Um, but I think one of the key things is, is the women. The women are quite different in Dalton's Bond. And, and at the time when they came out, there was a lot of, oh, he's a safe sex Bond, and this is the AIDS Bond, this is the AIDS generation Bond. And then I go back and read the novels, and you think, actually, when you read the novels, there's pretty much one woman, an adventure. But yeah. the women in, in Dalton's films are, they grow. They have interesting yeah. narrative arcs. And you think about Kara goes from being sort of very timid and towards the end she's driving trucks and punching people in the face and, and all these sorts of things. And then you have the women in License to Kill who, again, sort of subvert, I think, the formula, particularly Lupe. Lupe, for me, is very much like Domino in Thunderball. She's the kept woman. She's the abused woman. Bond ought to go for her, but Bond doesn't go for her. Bond goes for Pam. Bond goes for Pam, the strong woman, the woman who rescues him, the sort of the more modern woman. And I think that's a really interesting development in, in, a, in a, a franchise that sometimes has not treated women as well as perhaps it could have done. I'll put it that way. All right, let's talk Bond villains, Carrie. Yes. <laughs> Up to 1987, when The Living Daylights was released, 
We've seen some super villains who wanted to dominate the world like Blofeld in On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 1969, and again in Diamonds Are Forever in 71, or Hugo Drax in Moonraker in 1979. In adult movies, we see something different. Can you tell us what's different? Well, I think I think this this word complexity. I'm going to keep using the word complexity. I've used it about Dalton. I think about the villainy as well, particularly in in the living daylights, where we no longer have clarity over who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. The Bond films, you know, it used to be the guy with the cap, um, and then <laughs> and then suddenly you've got Yogi, and and Yogi's quite charming and kind of interesting. We also have this interesting use of American villains um, with Brad Whitaker bringing him in and, and then Killifer in, in License to Kill, which is, is something that Bond films haven't sort of been so keen on. They usually were these suave European types, even if they weren't supposed to be European types, they were the suave European types, I mean, discussed with Telly Savalas. But there's this sort of move towards a slightly more realistic, slightly more grounded, slightly more politically engaged villain. And I think that that's coming throughout the 80s. And I, I sometimes wonder if this is a Michael Wilson thing, because mm. he gets involved around For Your Eyes Only and and the films take it, do definitely take a bit of a turn there. So right and wrong is way more complicated. And you could argue about License to Kill. Is, is Bond is not exactly doing the right things. He makes mistakes. He, you know, nearly screws up, you know, Pam's attempts to, to get the Stinger missiles back and yeah. all those sorts of elements. They lack the clarity that, you know, Hugo Drax and Michael Lonsdale, bless him, passed away recently. He was a mm-hmm. fantastic actor. And he projects contempt and menace beautifully throughout the whole film. But with Don's Bond, they, they not only made him more complicated, I think they made the villains more complicated. And that's an interesting thing to do. And I think making them more complicated, I think I see that. But I also like that they made them more realistic, like a drug trafficker. I mean, mm. that's in the real world. That's something spies in the real world would deal with. And we in the United States have dealt with that with Noriega. So, I mean, I like that part where the, it was more of a, a realistic bent to the villain and not this super egomaniac who wants to dominate the world. And I, that was a relief, actually, uh, for the films. <laughs> no, I, I agree completely, and I think it, it's, it's an interesting shake-up. I mean, it's not to criticize the previous one, but in a, I guess in a post-Austin Powers world where we've had Dr. Evil and <laughs> we've had the question about how the henchmen get their pension plans and things like that it, it's having that more realistic villain is is it does root it and it creates more danger it yeah. you know creates a real set and Fran, you know Fran Sanchez is, is is terrifying and he's terrifying because people like that kind of exist you know he he might be a heightened version but they really do he may be for me speaking my favorite villain in any Bond movie he is so realistic we're we're going to try to get him on the show Robert Davi was just mm. Awesome and that he flawless was. And, he was. and and like you're saying, Carrie, you were scared of that guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Okay, Carrie, you mentioned earlier on about the shift from espionage to action films. Um, do you want to expand more more on that? Yeah, of course. Thank you, Vicky. I think it, it's the Bond films have always sort of s- sat slightly interestingly in different. I mean, they're almost their own genre. They almost sit apart, and they have evolved and transformed. And I think there was a realisation for the box office, if nothing else, in the late 80s, that high action, the high-octane action of the the, the, the more, you know, American-style thriller, action thriller, was taking over. And I think Licence to Kill sits more comfortably in there than perhaps it does along some of the more espionage-oriented the Bond films. I think the personal revenge narrative that occurs in licensed guilt is is odd for bond bond works for the state he is you know sometimes described as a blunt instrument but basically he's a representative of the british government he's paid i think fleming says like a civil servant and he doesn't do things for himself although that does occur within the, the novels we might talk about it later the purity of licensed guilt as, as an action movie is that it moves very distinctly along a sort of linear line from action point to action point with a, a very specific goal and end point and that the action motivates the, the sort of the journey more perhaps than in previous films. And But I think it is a reaction to what was going on. You can see that in the casting, is they cast the same sort of actors 
and we mentioned Robert Darvey, but we could mention Grandel Bush, yeah. people who are turning up in those late ac- 80s action movies, and both of them turn up in Die Hard. Um, Robert Darvey later, I think, turns up in Predator 2. These are the sorts of actors who are turning up in those sorts of movies. So there's a recognition of a shift in the audience. So Bond films have always shifted and adapted to the audience. Certainly after the 60s, they've had to evolve to stay relevant. Whether people in 1989 were ready for that with License to Kill, I'm not 100% sure. The box office suggests maybe not, but I'm sure we'll talk about the problems it had later. But it is a much more driven and much more heightened film. And there is a, I mean, the action scenes, I think, hold up terrifically well in License to Kill. The tanker chase is superb. The skiing behind the plane is, is brilliant. And the opening, I think it's one of the best opening sequences and a kind of an interesting opening sequence because in location-wise, you know, it's at a wedding. It's a very weird thing for a Bond film to do. Yeah. So it grounds Bond in the real world and it drives forward in a, a very action-oriented path. Whereas the Bond films have a sort of a travel log feel, the older ones. They, you have a feel that you look at Octopussy and we're going to spend some time looking at this floating palace or we're going to look at, you know, the, the streets and all. Whereas... License Kill is direct, it's straight to the point, and it, and it follows follows that track, I think, very, very, very well. Okay, so you, you talk about the, the grounding and you know, changing of things, and there's a point in License to Kill, and in, in the book you talk about when Sanchez takes Bond's Walter PPK and the shifting attitudes and how things are kind of changing a little bit here. So he takes the Walter PPK, and there's you talk about a specific symbolism here and also when he asked Pam for her gun. So can you kind of talk a little bit about that and what you were, because I I love the way you explained it, but I'm going to let you, let you go ahead and say it. Well, I just have to remember what I said now. No, no. Um, This is a point I got very excited about. This is one of those things that the filmmakers may turn around and say, you're a complete idiot, which is fine. But we need to go back to Dr. No, one of the, Early scenes in Doctor No is Bond goes into his office and there's a quartermaster there. It's not Q yet. And Bond is told to give in his gun. It's a Beretta. And he's given the Wolf of BBK. And the Wolf of BBK becomes a a very potent symbol of James Bond. Bad guys recognize him by it. Um, We on posters, you know, toy guns are copied from it. And I know he flirts with other guns like there's a a Magnum, I think, in Live and Let Die. Mm -hmm. But he always pretty much goes back to the Wolf when he has to give the Walther up, or he's told to give the Walther up, and he doesn't, there's something symbolic in there, and that M is the father figure. The, the, the Walther is the symbol of Bond's legitimacy. It is what gives him the power, it what gives him the authority to, to, to do his job. So being told to give it up and then having to surrender that sort of denudes him somewhat. But when he takes uh, or asks Pam for her gun, what does he get back? He gets another Beretta. It's not exactly the same model, but it takes us straight back to Dr. No, and it it almost, um, I, I sort of suggested it was like a symbolic growing up, that in this film, Bond has stripped away the father figure of M. He's thrown away the symbol of his, always had taken away the symbol of his sort of state legitimacy. And he's gone back to who he was back in Dr. No. He's taken up the gun that he previously had. And I, I just thought that was a really interesting point. And I, I thought I'd throw it in there and see how it flew. So I'm glad you liked it. Yeah, that's a nice okay. connection. That's great. So, Kara, you said, hey, you took this time during this pandemic stuff to reread all of Fleming's novels. So in this License to Kill piece, how do you, how well do you think they integrated the character from the Hildenbrand rarity, Milton Crest, into License to Kill? And it's the first Bond movie without a title from an Ian Fleming novel or short story. But I thought it was kind of clever that they took this character I, from I, one I, movie. I, 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 Agree completely, Dan. I think they they integrated that sort of unpleasant sleaziness very, very well, but then sat back in the middle of a much wider narrative. I mean, it's an interesting more like license skill because, of course, it borrows quite heavily from Live and Let Die as well, and the whole sequence with with Felix and that. um, I was it was funny when I was rereading Live and Let Die, which I hadn't read in a long time. I sort of was almost seeing the film sequence in my head, and it's the same with Crest. Is is they capture in essence, and I think the characters that are based on Fleming generally sing better on screen. They, they have more depth and more interest to them. So I think it's very clever. But then it's so is in The Living Daylights how they take that little idea of, of not shooting the assassin and then manage to spin this really interesting 
sort of Cold War narrative out of that. It's difficult because you want to keep the spirit of Fleming, but you can't yeah. recycle too much. So I, I think it's a, it, they've done well. And I think the lack of Fleming elements that we have to put up with now because, you know, we've run out of stories pretty much yeah. is, is a shame. Hey, that's cool. Can I just add, um, regarding Milton Crest, I love how, I believe Anthony Zerbe was in one of the Star Trek films, and I love how they emulate his death in that to the same as the death in, in Licence to Kill. It was pretty much the same. Uh, so it was a, li- a nice nod to, to Licence to Kill there, I thought. That's brilliant. If you're That's familiar with that. <laughs> Star Trek Insurrection. I haven't seen that in a long time. I'm going to have to watch it. I never noticed I'm going to have to watch I've it I've recently now. watched them all, because my, my husband is a Star Trek fan, so I've made him... Sit through Bond, and um, I've he got his revenge. Actually, I love so. I love Star Trek. I love I particularly the um, the the film series, the Shatner Nimoy film series. I am very very fond of those. You add in your book about the role of early Bond women, and I quote: "Often the women begin the film strong, only to become less capable by the end of the narrative." How do you see the role of the Bond girl developing in future films? Well, I think like they do in Dalton's films. And I think this is, again, why he's slightly ahead of the curve of the movies are, because the women grow and, and they develop strength. The problem you have is it's, a, it's really a gender politics thing, is if Bond is to be the ultimate male, which is, is a, he's a male fantasy. Then they used to say that men want to women be him and women want to be with him, and, and that's what Bond should project, is how do you, in a, a more modern way, strengthen the women without making Bond look weaker? Because if you raise the women up, then do you push Bond higher up? Or do you do that where they're really great up until the like the final act? It always gets me in Tomorrow Never Dies. Is Wei Lin and Michelle Yeoh is a fantastic actress and martial artist. And you see her Hong Kong movies and she's insanely good at stunts. And then right at the end of Tomorrow Never Dies, somehow she's like the easiest person ever to capture. It just takes a big German guy. Yeah. And then she's useless. It's like, oh, what a waste. I think you have to have women that grow I think Natalia in GoldenEye is a really good example of this. And they're very clever. They make her good at technology and they make Bond bandit, bad at technology. So Bond gets to be Bond and Natalia's got her own thing that she's terrific at. And so she's useful and, she, you know, okay, yeah, she needs rescuing, but she's there at the end with a gun to the pilot's head and, and she's doing things. So I, I, I think you have to do that. I'm fascinated by the representation of women in the, in the Craig films because I, I think it might have gone slightly backwards. I remember watching Skyfall and thinking, wow, I don't think we're treating women well here at all, I think. Spoilers, obviously, but, you know, we kill one who's got an awful past. Is it Severin? Yes. Severin, yes. yeah. And then we put Money Penny back in the office because she's not good enough to be outdoors, and then we kill M. And I'm like, this is... <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was really surprised by that, and, and I, I thought it, it did the opposite. It didn't let the female characters grow. No Time to Die looks like it might do that. We have a new double O who's female, who is a rival to Bond, so we'll, we'll see. It's, it's a really difficult thing. Do you, do you know spy film Salt with um, Angelina Jolie? Angelina Jolie, yeah. Yeah. That had a very interesting production because that started off as, a, I think, a, a Tom Cruise vehicle originally. It was discussed for him. And then when they cast Angelina Jolie, they flipped, obviously, the sex. But then they had a problem about what to do with the wife who was now a husband. Because, obviously, men are supposed to be better than women. So what they did is they made him an academic. So she, so she could be the stronger of the two, but he wouldn't be diminished in any way. Or she, he would be sort of different. So I think you have to look at the role of the women. What do they do to the plot? But not undermine anything that you do. Like, I think, sadly... Tomorrow Never Dies does. And that reminded me of Anya in uh, The Spy Who Loved Me, again, who's the, this amazing Russian agent yeah. until she gets tied to a chair. And then, you know, suddenly... You get out. I'm not, not going to criticise too much because the, the evening gown and was was amazing. <laughs> but <laughs> but then but that's the point, isn't it? That, that's, that's, that's what happens. So I think they have to give women roles that are, are meaningful and have a character arc that doesn't end in that sort of helplessness that, but you know, back in the 60s, we, we'd have been cool with. Interestingly <laughs> enough, uh, Natalia Simonaga is actually my favourite Bond girl. Um, <laughs> she's a level two programmer, and she's ridiculed by, ridiculed by Boris, you know, and, and she wears this little cardigan, totally different to what we've seen before, um, and for her to sort of save the day, 
it's good, it's good to say. Yeah, it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, so let's go ahead and continue talking about the future. And you mentioned the Daniel Craig movies and No Time to Die here. And tying that back into the Dalton series, Craig is probably the closest to Dalton from the Fleming books, if you will. So what, what are your thoughts really on how he's portrayed Bond? Do you have anybody you think should be stepping into the role? Now, I've heard a couple interviews where you've mentioned a name, and I'm just wondering as things get delayed, oh. if we're going to be aging out of that person. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I change my mind on this every five yeah. minutes. And sometimes I've been watching... Um, the Haunting of Bly Manor, which has just come out. And I'm not going to remember his name, but there's an actor in there who's an English actor, but he's got a Scottish accent. He's about 33. That's a good age for this. It is a good age. And I was watching it, and much to my disappointment, my wife finds this man incredibly attractive, but that is important for James Bond. (laughs) And he has a cruelness to him and an intensity to him. And I was just watching this, and I think all Bond fans do this. You kind of mentally cast people when you're watching other things. And I was like, okay, I could see him. Tom Hardy's got mentioned before probably by me, definitely about other people. Is he too old? I think he is. I mean, yeah. if, if we're talking about No Time to Die ah. not coming out till next year, yeah. when's the next one going to come out? Another five or six years? Can't get many films in with somebody who's in their 40s. Yeah, I think at the pace that they turn them around now, I think that I think, I think think that's a, a missed opportunity. I know um, Henry Cavill gets mentioned. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't mind him. I, I have no problem with him, but I think that the he's also Superman if he is still Superman. And I think well, he's also a, getting up there a little bit in age. Yeah, he is. So, so I'm liking the idea of somebody who's in their low thirties right now. I think I think they have to decide what they want to do, and and they have to give each Bond has their merits and and you know has their has their flaws. And I think with Daniel Craig, they made a very interesting decision, very at the time controversial decision. I. Remember when he was cast, there were sort of internet campaigns to say Daniel Craig is not, you know, there was a website which was Bond Not Blonde or something, because <laughs> they'd never seen anything with Roger Moore, obviously. And, you know, like, um, and I, you know, and then Casino Royale came out and blew us away. And and I think Casino Royale is, is an amazing film. Yeah. Um, Top five. I, it, it is. It oh, is you're terrific. back to the books. Yes, and absolutely, and I think it, it although it expands and, and, and works around the novel, it has that framework and that core of, of Fleming's novel. For me, Daniel Craig has never been as good as then. I may be disproved in April, maybe, <laughs> you know, because I get really fed up now. You know, I was getting very excited about watching this, and then, of course, it's all delayed. I think I, 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 Quantum of Solace is fine. I, I, Quantum of Solace gets kicked a lot. I yeah. do not mind it. I think it was made in a rush and it, you can feel that the script hasn't quite been worked through. I think Craig has talked about how he was actually writing pages himself and, you know, he didn't want to do yeah, that. I, I think they were doing it the day they were shooting and stuff. They were writing stuff. Yeah. We actually uh, interviewed Roberto Schaefer, the director yes. of photography for that. And yes, you that did. That was fun. That was fun. That's anyway. brilliant. And then I'm, I'm not a fan, and I mentioned briefly in the book, I'm not really a fan of, of Skyfall, and I'm not particularly a fan of Spectre. I mean, Skyfall, for some of the reasons I've already mentioned, but I also think it, it has all these logical problems that I, I really get annoyed with. It's, the film opens that Bond has to get this disc back. I don't think he ever gets the disc back. We saw, we've seen films where, where, where you know, people go looking for, for discs, um, like Mission Impossible, um, I also thought that taking M to the house, uh, okay, it was nice for the name, but that was just crazy. Bad and idea. Look, yeah, I just like, and also Silver's plan was so complex. Everything had to run perfectly in time for the train to drop and for his uniform to be there. And, and I, I got, I don't know if angry is the right word, but I was quite disappointed. And then Spectre did the, the worst thing ever for any film, which I find it quite boring. I found that the car chase was slow. Yes. I'm going to say, I think the car chase is one of the most uh, unexciting car chases of the franchise. It just, you were waiting for something really good to happen and it never came. Yeah, and I think that was, I mean, that was a movie made under great pressure. And, and to be fair, I often have this reaction to the Bond movies and then later on, I warm up to them. I World's not enough. I was not that keen on. Actually, I will quite happily put it on on a Sunday afternoon and enjoy it for its own merit. So I think Craig has, again, intensity. His physicality is amazing. I mean, he is a big guy. And there's that wonderful chase scene in Casino Royale with the parkour runner yeah. where he's leaping through things. And Craig just runs through stuff. There's nothing subtle about his bond. He is a you know, blunt instrument, which is I used earlier. 
he absolutely nails that. But I think there's been a, I don't think he's been used as, as well as Casino Rao suggested he could be. But then how many billion dollars at the box office? Guy Fall was 1.1 billion. So, you know, what do I know? Uh, and, and Somebody is, liked it. Somebody, and, yeah, yeah, lots of people. And Spectre made not as much money, but still still did did pretty well. So... Yeah. I like Skyfall. A- I, I just think, but you're you're correct in terms of the connections and the theme of it, and hey, it's a bad idea bringing them to Skyfall. All that kind of stuff is like, yeah, okay, hard to stomach. I, I'm pretty much an advocate of Casino Royale. I, I don't think it's been emulated since, and I think the opening scene that's shot in black and white, yes, is an amazing brilliant. opening, really brilliant. But, but what a brave choice to do that after. Yeah. So many years just to go, you're not going to have the gun barrel. Mm-hmm. We're not going to have Q. We're not going to have money, Penny. We're going to throw you in in black and white in a, non, a scene that bounces around in time. Yeah. And, and you know, you've got to applaud them. But there is something I will mention, and, and this goes back to Goldeneye, is, is Martin Campbell is a fantastic action director. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's any surprise that his two Bond films are both absolutely superb. Yes. I think that he is a, a huge driving force and... I, they always try and get him back, and they can't get him back, and, uh, and it's a shame. So we've talked about how sometimes outside influences work their way in the films, like with Bond women and so on. Certainly things that are going on in the world affect how they're going to portray Bond women in the future. So in your book, you talk about how the political, the current political context finds its way into a lot of the Bond films. And sometimes it's mimicking the real world, like you mentioned, I think, Iran Gate mimics in the living daylights, and then the role of the Mujahideen also in the living daylights, etc. Could you dive into this a bit, especially when looking at the changing political sympathies, what risks Ian Productions and these guys are taking? Well, I, I think it's always difficult. The Mujahideen problem is... Well, they're good guys this week, um, which is the, the Rambo 3 problem of we set a movie in the uh, if Afghanistan and then it came out after the Russians had left, they yes, think. Right. Uh, it's, it's a really difficult one because you want to be relevant and contemporary, but at the same time, that ages your movie terribly if you get it wrong. So, Fran Sanchez, Drug Lord, well, they're going to be around forever. Yes, he has parallels with Noriega, and, and you mentioned that, and you could build on that. He's not so pinned to now. Mm-hmm. I think it's a real challenge. I think that the Bond producers have been quite canny. I was, again, Quantum of Solace, which like is an unloved movie, but it's all about water rights. And I've been reading recently about how China's damming rivers yeah. and those rivers that flow, you know, flow into other countries. And I'm like, this is about water rights. They were absolutely bang up. Tomorrow never dies. Who would have thought a media mogul would manipulate us into political situations that we can't get ourselves out of? <laughs> Um, so some of them actually feel more contemporary now than they did then. I think the Bond films are, are, have got a problem, and it's a problem they've had for a while, is that they are essentially, at least Fleming's novels were, were fantasies of, of Britain to a certain extent, the, the, the fantasies of British power at a time when, after the Second World War, the empire's crumbling, you know, we, you know, Britain loses India, and then the, all the other colonies sort of disappear, and we have this thing called the Commonwealth, but, you know, that's kind of a club, it doesn't really mean as much. So how do you have that essential sort of Britishness in a modern context? And it is a, it's a difficult one, and I, I don't know what, what the answer is. I think it's, it's a really problematic one with a, a film series that is essentially a patriotic thing. You know, it's the Union Jack parachute. Yeah. You know, it, it's that moment, and that's a, that's a great moment. In a modern political reality Things are much less stable. And I think probably the answer, if, if Barbara Buckley and Michael Wilson want to hire me as a consultant, I am available. And <laughs> I, I would suggest try and stay away from it. And I, I think maybe go back to something more classically Bond, something less politically. And, and you know, bringing Spectre back, I say I didn't like the, the movie so much, but the idea is a less political hot potato because you do risk a shift in geopolitics making you look stupid. And it, it, it can date your movies terribly. Absolutely. So you talk about the geopolitical changes and how they can date a movie. There are also some habits and attitudes that appear in the Fleming books that Dalton tried to bring back in The Living Daylights. And I'm thinking of things like there's some smoking, swearing, Bond's just general attitude. Sanchez's relationship with Dario brings some stuff out from the books that we hadn't seen 
in the movies before. Can you kind of talk about what some of those are? Because I know you mentioned them in your book. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I was... The smoking one's an interesting one. License to Kill was the first Bond film to have a warning about smoking. I think if you watch to the end, it's the US warning, the Surgeon General tells you that smoking is bad. Well, yeah, I know that. The way I see Bond, and I think the way Dalton did, and I think the way Fleming wrote him, is this is a guy who does an awful job. And what does he do to cope with that? Well, he smokes, he drinks, he womanizes. And I think that's an essential part of his character. I think that's who he is. And I think if you put it in the context of... It's not glamorous, but it's, it's what he does, then I think it makes sense. And Fleming, uh, sorry, Dalton brought smoking back very deliberately. He, he thought this is a man who has vices, um, and I think those vices are part of his sort of yeah coping strategies, as it were. And I think that's really important. As for swearing, he didn't swear a lot in the books. Sometimes Fl- Fleming alludes to him swearing. He says, you know, Bond let fire a four-letter word or something like that. He, he doesn't. So... Look, there's a little bit of swearing. I mean, I don't think there's anything that's going to upset the horses. And I think I think Dalton thought, whether he was right about this, he thought he was making movies aimed at adults that kids might watch. Whether the everybody agrees that that's what Bond films are. And I think, yeah, smoking, drinking, swearing are, are sort of absolutely adult elements. But, the, yeah, I mean, you talk about the relationship between Sanchez and Dario, and I, you, you could even go so far to imply that that Sanchez is interested in Bond in a way that that mimics or is, is hinted at in Man with a Golden Gun, the novel with Scaramanga, that there, there's a sort of sexual interest there. And I think that is subtle, but I think it, 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 it alludes to an aspect of the Bond villains is that they are, in 1950s terms, sexually difficult. And when Fleming's writing, of course, he... I mean, he's quite a kinky guy if you read about Fleming and you read, you read about him himself. He's a kind of interesting guy. But he, he definitely projects certain things into the villains, and they are, and I quote Umberto Eco, who wrote about the, the Bond novels, I think in the 60s, and he talked about this sort of, the idea that there's something sexually wrong with the villains, and, and they, you know, it's interesting to see that brought forward, and that's, just to cover my back, that's not me saying anything sexually wrong with anybody, but I think within the, the Fleming context, that's, that's something in the novels, and I, I just kind of like to see that. On a broader question, I want to ask you guys, actually, because I think it's an interesting question, is does Fleming really matter anymore? Have the Bond films moved so far away that actually, is it about Fleming? Oh, that's a tough one. And I, I wish there was more Fleming. I wish he would have lived longer and written more. And I think their responsibility is to Fleming still and that they should go back, and they're not going to get stories from Fleming anymore unless they pull pieces out like they did with Milton Crest and so on. Mm. But I think they should be true to the character of Bond, and that's what Fleming wrote, and that's what they should focus on, I think. Well, and I think you get that in the continuation novels too. So is it can we take some of those forward, which is taking the Bond character and progressing it? Because quite honestly, for me, the best movies were the ones that were based on the books in some yeah. degree. And I think we're missing that now. I was going to say, you get the um, the other authors doing the Bond stories. I'd be interested to see what that would be like on, on the big screen, you know, by some of the, you know, Raymond Benson, so some of, some of the other authors that have took over the Bond writing. Yeah. I, you know, Raymond Benson, for instance, he wrote six Bond novels. I think he's second in terms of, sure number plus he wrote three novelizations and we we're going to have him on our show we we've met him a few times he lives like 20 like five miles from me five miles from town about 20 miles from me yeah (laughs) he's 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 in a suburb of chicago okay carrie what's next for you then in the world of bond what other projects have you got uh, uh on the cards i you know i don't know i um I've got other things going on. We've, we've talked about um, vigilante cinema, and I'm, I'm actually writing a book on that for a publisher. Well, at least I should be. I've got to deliver it in December, so I've got at least two months. Um, so that's going on. I, I wrote a chapter for somebody else's book, which is about French Connection and Dirty Harry, which is a spin-off because yeah. I'm interested in those and, and that period in cinema generally. Um, I've written some stuff about horror for um, a site called Horror Homeroom, and I've written about folk horror for a journal called Revenant. I looked at a very obscure Welsh folk horror Connection between me and Timothy Dalton is I have a Welsh background and he was born in North Wales in, in Colwyn Bay. So I, I sort, of, sort of have another link to him there. I think that might play <laughs> on me emotionally. With Bond, I don't know. Because like I said, I did this and sort of did it for fun. And then I'm talking to you guys and this is amazing. So I do think about writing about the Brosnan films in a similar sort of way. It would have to be 
slightly, you know, it'd be a, a larger work because there's four movies, but I think applying similar ideas would be good. I think I have, as, as you mentioned earlier, felt this sort of shift against them, which is really interesting because they were hugely popular. And even, look, I'm not a fan of Die Another Day, but even I will admit that that movie made a lot of money and you have to see it within the box office context and you have to go, well, you don't make $400 million or whatever unless you're getting something right. But I don't think Brosnan's ever bad. I think Brosnan's great. His stories weren't great to work with. Yes, and I think I think Brosnan is doing his best, and I think Goldeneye is his his best movie, and he's most yeah. sort of assured in that. Um, I think maybe I'll do that, but you know, I'll just keep talking to people because it's fab. <laughs> just keep I would talking. find that really interesting because I'm a I'm a big fan well, of, I thought, of, of Brosnan. I didn't um, notice at all. There's no hints <laughs> at all. He's twenty. He's twenty five years old. <laughs> um, yeah. I went to see Goldeneye at the cinema back, back in 95. I went five times in the first week to see Goldeneye. Wow, So it's brilliant. a big uh, nostalgic sort of yeah, film for me. You. So where you, where you were saying everybody has a bond that they can relate to, he would be mine, although I do think Sean Connery is the best bond. That is my opinion. But there's a subjective element to all of this, and there's a personal element to all of these things. We can all fit in in this rather fabulous franchise and have our bit. So, all right, Carrie, if people want to get a hold of you and order your book, where should they look? Uh, well, the book's available on Amazon. Um, you can have it in a hard, well, not hardback, it's a printed copy, a hard copy. Mm-hmm. Or you can have it on Kindle if you prefer, but I prefer pages. I prefer paper. I think it's much better. Um, <laughs> and so it's available on Amazon. Uh, just search for He Disagreed With Something That Ate Him. It should come up. Great title. I, I do have a, a blog at uh, edwardscom which I am incredibly poor at updating. But you, if you want to get hold of me, probably the best thing is just to follow me on Twitter at Carrie Edwards PhD is is where I live on Twitter, and uh, I I do Twitter more than the other ones, so that's that's kind of where I circulate. All right, well that's a wrap. Thanks so much, Carrie. We've enjoyed our time talking with you about Dalton and your book. He disagreed with something that ate him. We appreciate it. Thanks Thank a lot, you. It, it's, it's been brilliant. All three of you, it's been fab to chat. And one of the things that writing this has done is, is it has suddenly brought me into a world of, of, of wonderful people who love James Bond. And isn't that fab that we have now had the technology that we can connect over thousands of miles yes. and just, just enjoy it. Yeah. Absolutely. Fantastic. Thanks again. We appreciate Thanks, it. You're welcome. This has been Dan Silvestri. Tom Pizzotto. Vicky Hodges of SpyMovieNavigator.com as we crack the code of the Dalton Bond movies with Dr. Carrie Edwards. Please tell your friends about our show and give us a five-star rating on your podcast app right now. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.